Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Rob's Observations. I am Rob Liefeld, taking you through this crazy journey of uh, comic books, pop culture, comic book movies, comic book TV. It's everywhere. Uh, prior to jumping on with you today, I watched the first episode of Loki, and we're not here to discuss Loki. It's just uh, to 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 really drive home the home the point that there is comic book content coming between us and our TV sets and our streaming devices all the time now. I mean, every day, again, I don't need to remind you, or you can go watch all of the Invincible series that that, that is that is on uh, Amazon, or you can watch um, the, the season one of Jupiter's Legacy, which just got canceled and after one season, but they're going to um, maybe try something else with Mark Miller's uh, catalog that they purchased for 30 million dollars so so th- this is a giant um obviously time in the culture for guys like myself who were pulling these comic books off spinner racks when I was seven years old at, at my favorite <laughs> my favorite dealers you know I went to com- my, my dealers just like there was drug dealers there's comic book dealers right and and if you've never listened to this before this will be news to you, and if you've listened to my show regularly, you're going to, oh no, he's going to mention the, the infamous crosswalk. Yes, Broadway and Magnolia in Anaheim, California st- still has the 7-Eleven, still has the Pizza Hut. The liquor store disappeared, and the 7-Eleven that was across the street took over the liquor store's, you know, uh, uh, real estate. And then the Stater Brothers, which was a grocery store out here in California, which had great comic book selection, that became a gym, and that is now closed. But uh, even a few weeks ago, I'm like, I fired up my old Jeep, my Jeep that I bought with my very first royalty, significant royalty check from New Mutants 100. And when a comic book sells a million copies, as New Mutants 100 did, and you wrote it, and you drew it, and you inked it, uh, you get a nice... A nice chunk of that, and and so I went and bought my first Jeep Wrangler, and, and I still have it to this day. It's kind of a memento of that time of that period. I fired it up. I dry, I still drive down there. It's an annual thing, and I love to go into the Seven Eleven, which used to be the liquor store, and now I look across, and what was used to be the Seven Eleven is now half a uh, nail, you know, ladies' nails, you know, a uh, uh, place where you paint your nails, and uh, and and then there's there's uh, a taco place, so it's cool. Um, but, but it's, it's those memories, it, they pull to me so strongly and there's a significance to this crosswalk that we're going to bring up later because we're going back to it just a, about a block beyond it today to go to the Anaheim library because the Anaheim library is where our main subject today went down, uh, in, in a big way and, and really started a movement that again, helped bring everything that we are experiencing now it started there in the mainstream and and we're going to get to the marvel fireside comics marvel by the fireside you're like what is that i'm going to tell you what that's about you old geezers like myself are going to completely dig it because these were awesome but for my hot topics today for my hot topics um so, so this is the time of year we've just in in the month of may or especially the end of may I know now we're, we're we're further along as I as I record this right now we're in early June, but but the month of May there is constant uh, uh, revisiting of 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 this on this day on this day we are 
a, a, a culture now of memories. I get told every day what I was doing this time, some other day in the last umpteen years that I've been on social media. So for me, social media on Facebook goes to, I think, 2008. So everything I've done uh, since, since 2008 is shown to me. Uh, here, here, this is what you did on June, blah, 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 2008, 2009, 2000. Every time I post it, it comes back. You guys all have it too, whether you're on Instagram or or Twitter or 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 Facebook or, or, or Google likes to show you this stuff. Here's a memory for you. Here's a memory. We are, it, it's so weird that there's, there's some sci-fi movie to, you know, come of this, of course, it's some matrix, uh, you know, level stuff where we're all plugged into the matrix and these, these revisiting of the memories are just what keep us, keep us, you know, neutralized. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating. It's nuts how much we rely on memories, which is kind of nostalgia, right? I love seeing what my kids looked like when they were eight, six and, and five. That, that, that's fun to me. It is. And I understand it's, it's a bit of a crutch, but it's part of the world we live in regardless. And for that extended period in the, in, in the end of May, you are going to receive, as I did on this day, Star Wars, A New Hope was released in 1977. On this day, Empire Strikes Back was released in 1980. On this day, in 1983, Return of the Jedi. On this day, Attack of the Clones. On this day, Phantom Menace. You know, it's 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 that these Star Wars movies were part of every summer launch for the longest time. But here's the kicker: the the uh, something that was passing around on social media the other day that I stopped. It was yesterday, in fact, and it said it's it's one. You guys get these memes, right? You get them all the time. They're like, um, what what was the 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 song that was number one? On your eighth birthday will define the rest of your year. I love that stuff. I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for it. So this one that I saw yesterday, excuse me, <clears throat> said the movie that was number one on your 10th birthday will define the rest of your 2021. Well, guess what, guys? I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for that. I'm like, what What? what would be the number one movie in, in October? October 3rd. That's my birthday. October 3rd. What would be my you know, what would be the number one movie on October 3rd of my birthday? So, of course, I took to the internet and I googled in October 3rd, 1977. October 3rd, 1977. That is when I rang the bell and hit my first decade mark, okay? And lo and behold, Star Wars A New Hope was the number one movie, October 3rd, the weekend of October 3rd. Uh, I, think, I think it was October 2nd, uh, that weekend, uh of my 10th birthday. And I literally was like, wait a second, Star Wars was still number one in October after it came out in May and was in theaters in June and July and August and September. And then obviously Star Wars was the number one movie for that year. Star Wars was a mad phenomenon. I've I've talked a lot of times about how it changed cinema and special effects, but today I'm going to change, I'm I'm going to add a a few ingredients I, I do want to share to you in terms of what was the world like? What was that experience like in 1977? And, I, and I've really spent the last day since I read this, writing down notes, committing to memory, what, what the conditions were. Now, there weren't multiplexes. You, there were most theaters in my area in Orange County had, let's say, four um, to six screens at that time max. And in the six screens, those were the big houses. Most of the places I went had had four screens, you know, that, that, that they were built to, you know, 
four four different theaters, and if there was a hot movie, it would it would definitely play in two of them. But prior to 1977, uh, here, here's something you need to understand. I never sat next to anybody, and I had never seen a crowded theater, a crowded movie house ever. That's a fact, and everybody my age will tell you that. I, I, I look at, I, I was going through um, watching some, you know, footage, documentaries, some YouTubes about what was it like in 1977. It's cool. It's got some, you know, I saw all the places they were cribbing some of the the footage from that's been been seen so so often, and 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 so much of it, it comes from um, the 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 Star Wars documentary that is, I, I believe now. Um, it's it's on the Disney Plus. It's the it's like three hours. It's so worth watching, and uh, and and there's this this one familiar shot of everybody around the Chinese theater where it was really um, rocking all summer long, and 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 they actually only had a contract I think for two weeks or two months, and they had to move it to a smaller movie house. They actually re- out refitted to keep it in the Chinese theater's kind of domain. Because they already had contracts to give that those screens to other, you know, other film houses. And let me tell you something. Those contracts are still binding to d- today. I remember when Deadpool 2 came out and talking to the Fox people. And we really, we being, you know, everyone who was involved with the Deadpool films. And, and, it, and at the very most peripheral sense, I was involved. But, um, but I, I certainly didn't run camera, run sound, you know. Cast it, direct it, but obviously it doesn't exist without me. So, so they were kind. They included me. They flew me to set. So I, I just got to quantify. I mean, peripherally, but but Fox was including me in all the press, in all the promos, and and so right before the premiere in New York City, we were in the hotel, and everyone was kind of speculating how the coming weekend was going to come. It was a Tuesday night that the movie was going to premiere, and they're like, "Well, we have the IMAXs all to ourselves for only one week." Summer 2019 was a bear. We were. Um, only able to sleep, get Deadpool 2 into the theaters, into the IMAXs, because the Disney contract on the um, the uh, Endgame uh, was was for two weeks. And, and then they got them back for Solo. So Disney got them back for Solo the week after Deadpool 2, because that month of, of, of May was, you know, I think end of April, launched Endgame, two weeks, then Deadpool 2, then Solo. And then literally, guys, after that, it just becomes, it became a new blockbuster um, a week. I don't know, um, it, you know, where, where some of these other f- films factor in, uh, but but that was just a very, very busy summer. It was just elbows and knees for screen time. And I just know the month of May, there was only one week that those IMAX screens were dedicated solely to 20th Century Fox. And so, and, and yeah, Disney had already purchased them, but that purchase hadn't been completed. So Fox was still operating independently and competing with Disney for screens. And I had a guy the year prior sit at my table at, the, at a dinner at San Diego and say, Disney wants to lock up as many screens as possible to freeze out the other competing studios. And when you get to like kind of what's going on in the voting rights and in the political spectrum of the world, and when you hear like, they want to only make it X amount of precincts and give you X amount of time to vote... Look, it's these kind of applications to the theater world. If you're in power and you can freeze out your competition and keep them from getting the higher price IMAX screens or just screens, period, or your contract only says that you can take up, that the theaters have to give you four screens for one month on your movie. And guys, those contracts are lock, stock, and key. They, they, they exist. They're real. And those theater owners have to scramble sometimes 
the Chinese theater scrambling and opening some derelict closed theater to keep Star Wars in the in 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 the Chinese theater you know distrib- distribution chain so they couldn't lose it because it was their biggest money maker in the summer of 1977 is the best version of this story. But um, enough with the distribution, uh, uh, the unexpected distribution, um, um, you know, newsletter and and education here um, and and session. Uh, I had never sat next to anybody in a crowded theater. Along the lines prior to going to see Star Wars in 1977, I would see the Apple Dumpling Gang. A lot of Disney movies, okay? The Apple Dumpling Gang with Don Knotts and, uh, I mean, it was... uh, they were fun, cool Disney movies. Pete's Dragon. Uh, I think that's actually, that's after. Again, not, not not crowded. King Kong, 1976. Dino De Laurentiis. Remake of King Kong got a lot of press. It got giant ads in every comic book. They used the, the, the function of the passion that I share with you about comic books to, uh, it was on the back cover of most comic books or the inside back cover, at least, at the very least, a full page ad in every comic book uh, they were, and I mean, come on, that, that, if you ever want to see that movie poster for King Kong in 1976, it is, it is magnificent. It, it is, it, the, the, you were hoping that that painting would resemble, um, you, you were hoping that that ad was, was going to resemble what you got in the movie. Now, I, I really do in, enjoy that movie, uh, but, but, but at the end of the day, the movie didn't live up to the painting. But that was a big Hollywood release, a big budget. There was They had segments on the news about the big, giant animatronic King Kong. And it was supposed to pack movie theaters in. There was a giant uh, movie theater that had two screens next to um, Disneyland, right on Harbor Boulevard for, uh, up until the 80s when they, they closed it. It literally was really beautiful, all-glass building. And, and you went inside, and my cousin and I went to see King Kong the weekend it came out, and there were hundreds of open seats. And there, the, the, these were two giant theaters. It was like the big movies got released there. But we were, you know, feet up the chairs in front of us, and, you know, dozens of open chairs between us and anyone remotely close to us. Same with the Apple Dumpling Gang, or when they re-released the uh, 20... Um, 20 Leagues Under the Sea. Disney was, you know, really doing a lot of big family films. There was a movie called The Wilderness Family, which was a take on the Swiss Family Robinson that was in the mountains. And um, again, when I would go see these movies, uh, I was there was no one ever sitting next to me. I did not experience anything remotely uh, resembling a crowded movie theater until Star Wars, until 1977, when you got a seat, you were most definitely going to be up as close as possible up close and personal to whoever else was sitting next to you. There was no reserved seating. You waited in long lines for every single, uh, 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 you know, showing of Star Wars and whatever candy and pop you had. And guys, they didn't have holders back then either. Not in my Orange County theaters. That was a domain of the 80s when you got cup holders. But you had your bag of popcorn. You had your hot dog. You had your, if you were Robbie Liefeld, you were ca- you were calories up, man. You you had your candy bar. You were going to make that the best experience of your life, man. Your your lunch money that day, you're, you're, you saved your lunch money all week long. You, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you, your lawnmower money, you had to, you had to start kind of lower budgeting your comics to make money, make sure you had money for those movie screenings of Star Wars, which I saw 33 times in the summer of 1977, which did carry into the fall, but it's, it was, um, twice a weekend, every Saturday, 
my friends and I, we would see Star Wars and we would already have tickets to the show right after. So it would get out and we'd just go back in. It was that big of a ride. It was that big of a, wow, we've never seen anything like this. The Star Destroyer crawling overhead in the beginning of, of, of the opening frames is like nothing uh, that anyone had experienced before then. Like I said, the special effects, everything that George and his I, I, ILM had, had, had put forth, uh, it, it made the difference. It was that extra juice. And the characters, I mean, Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan, Han, the Cowboys, the East versus West, the samurai kind of culture, the cowboy culture, all the mashups that Lucas pulled off. But again, long lines to wait for theaters was a new thing. You, waiting outside, making sure you had to budget to get there 90 minutes before. Otherwise, you'd be at the end of the line and you'd be up close sitting right there in the third row. You know, it, it, it was the first time you had to strategize. You had to plan. And again, you were never seeing Star Wars alone. That summer of 1977, you were elbows and knees. Um, and, and you were up against people on all sides. When we would go with our friends, multiple friends, we'd always negotiate. No, no, you're on the end this time. You're the one who's going to have to sit next to somebody else that we don't know. Strangers, whatever. We, we, I saw it in Orange. I saw it in Anaheim. I saw it in Buena Park. Uh, the Anaheim Loge which had four screens, is where I ended up seeing it the most and, and, and it was closest to my house. And, and that's where I saw it, you know, repeatedly, repeatedly. But again, just that's one of the biggest awarenesses. Uh, and then a movie that came out on Memorial Day was number one five months later on my birthday. Just as a testament to how much, again, we now take for granted that we're going to get all these huge... $200 million effects-laden vistas, landscapes, and 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 we're going to... It's just It comes with the dinner, right? I mean, this is what we go to the movies for. I go see King Kong versus Godzilla, knowing that they are going to thump hard on Mecha Godzilla, knowing that I'm going to be absolutely blown away. My son last night said, how many times have you seen that movie? I, I've probably seen it five times. I thought Adam Wingard crushed it. I King Kong looks freaking real, Okay. Godzilla looks freaking real. Come on, the aircraft carrier battle, all of it. That is not possible without ILM and all of the strides and the advances that George Lucas made. And so so my hot topic today was to take you back, not just for the special effects and the appreciation of the story and the mashup, but really it changed the business and the culture of how we saw films. It was no longer... When my, my cousin and I went to see King Kong in 1976, we... We're dropped off at the curb, walked right inside, got two tickets, and walked into an empty theater, just like it was with the Apple Dumpling Gang, just like it was when I got my sister seven years older than me to take me to see Logan's Run that summer. I didn't see Logan's Run in a packed theater. I didn't see Logan's Run, uh, you know, at all. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. My dad took me to see the animated um, Robin Hood, where he's a fox, and uh, and the king is a lion. Those those are great cartoons when... when, uh, came back into theaters when I was a kid. And I remember there was nobody around us. We would see, you know, again, uh, they released Mary Poppins at the time. And my family went to see it with completely open chairs, open seats everywhere. But Star Wars, Star Wars changed it. Star Wars, I think, got people into theaters who had not gone in years. Because I remember a couple of years later, we were out in Palm Springs. And my mom really wanted to see Airplane and thought it would be safe for her son and her Baptist minister husband because she loved a good comedy and she loved all those airplane dramas that it was sending up. There was, in the 70s, it was all about 
for several years. Air, airport 75, Airport 77, Airport 76. Um, I think the first one is just called Airport. Always something happened on a plane. Terrorists on a plane. I think the last one, Airport 77, and it, again, that great ad that was in all the... Um, uh, another painted ad like King Kong that was a little misleading. I think Airport 77, one of the last airports, uh, the plane is underwater. And it's this shot of the entire plane on the bottom of the ocean floor. And that makes for great, whoa, I got to see that. But there was always something going wrong. The planes were malfunctioning. They were being terrorized. So when Airplane came out by the Zucker brothers, they're, they're, uh, they're spoofing, you know, they're absolutely 100% um, spoofing all those dramas. And oh my gosh, what a funny movie. But th- 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 we saw in Palm Springs, that 7 p.m. show, um, it was packed, elbow to elbow. Again, it's like this is like Star Wars now. People, people have gotten into going to see the movies. I think Star Wars may have saved um, movie going. I did not see Jaws in 1975, and some of you are going to say, "Well, Rob, it was like that with Jaws." That's fine. I saw Close Encounters in 1978 in a theater, and it was also back to not being as packed. So maybe it started with Jaws, and then there was you know nothing like Jaws was out for a couple of years, and then Star Wars just. I'll tell you what. The lines outside that Grauman's Chinese Theater, the, that mob of thousands of people in in all different sorts of switchback lines, that wasn't happening for Jaws. Um, I, I remember the media reporting on on how successful Jaws was, but so that's my, you know, just recollection. It's the first time I remember you were definitely under every possibility going to sit next to someone in a crowded, packed out, sold out. Sold out. There was a guy laying in the aisle once. He just lay down after the movie started because he didn't want to, I guess, sit next to somebody. And he just kind of put his hands behind his head. And the ushers back then were like, yeah, you probably knew somebody. But yeah, crazy packed houses. That is my, my most significant memory of Star Wars. So today, Marvel by the fireside. What are you talking about? What are you even talking about, Liefeld? So in... Wait, wait for it, right? Because it's the greatest decade, the 70s. Woohoo! Let's hear it for the 70s. In the 70s, Marvel Comics 1974 releases. They make a contract, just like the contracts we were talking about the theaters. They packed with a Simon and Schuster label. Okay, Simon and Schuster, huge publisher. They packed with them to create a line of Fireside Books. Fireside Books is the label that was kind of this kid-friendly label that they had put out, as I understood it. And this would make, again, this would make the first appearances that were inaccessible to so many people, the first appearances of Thor and Hulk and the Fantastic Four and Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, it would make them accessible for a, 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 a really, um, really cheap cover price. My copy from 1974, Origins of Marvel Comics by Stan Lee is the first one. And it gives you the origins in a nice, thick, uh, very well-produced trade paperback. The first I had encountered, it gives you Fantastic Four. It gives you you two different adventures of the Fantastic Four. It gives you the first appearance of Silver Surfer in his Galactus story. It gives you the first ever appearance of Fantastic Four. It gives you the first Hulk adventure. It gives you uh, not only the first, um, the amazing... Fantasy 15 with Spider-Man. It reprints Spider-Man 72 with a, a tale by the Shocker. These were meant to introduce you to the characters, who they were, what they did, and why um, the Marvel Universe was so special. Journey to Mystery 83 here, the first appearance of Thor, is um, is then followed 
by a crackalackin issue. You can hear, hear the pages of my copies turning of Thor 143, okay? By 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 Stan and Jack. Um, Origins of Marvel Comics was a runaway success. This thing hit like a ton of bricks. It, it was meant to get primary uh, placement in the bookstores. Bookstores, so malls had become a huge thing. Shopping malls were popping up all over the place. And shopping malls were now the way that America interacted with, you know, the culture. And that's where they went to get all manner of items from sportswear to cookware, um, toy shops, and of course, the bookstores. And Walden's Books was one of the biggest franchises that I remember out here on the West Coast. All of the major malls had a giant Walden's Books. And when you walked into their, you know, open, you just walked right into the, the bookstore they had these tables, and these tables had multiple, you know, what you would call what was the equivalent to the point of purchase at a grocery store. You're, you know, it's the first stuff on the table that you'd see. This is how I would encounter how to draw comics the Marvel way. They had them stacked, and then of course up on the on on the on the shelf on the uh, on the placard facing you. So you'd see it when you walked in. The closer to the door you got, the better the placement was, whatever deals that was cut, because that does not come for free. Again, that's pre-negotiated, just like your end caps, just like I was taught in toys. Those end caps are bought and, and, and paid for. When you see toys on an end cap, again, in a toy store, that they just didn't want to put My Little Pony there. They were contractually obligated to put My Little Pony there because My Little Pony, the, whoever makes My Little Pony, I'm just using this, could be the Transformers. Star Wars is giving an extra kickback to the store, is giving more money back to them so the store keeps more money and gets a better discount on the on the toys if they indeed have a dedicated end cap, okay? So these are the equivalents of end caps, the equivalents to point of purchase, and Marvel wanted to get their stuff out there. Comic books were not displayed. Comic books were on a rack. Spinner racks were in the, in the middle of the store next to the magazine sections at every single bookstore I went to. And uh, whether it was Crown Books or Walden's Books, these are the bookstores that I encountered in the malls. Marvel knew that's where the action was going down, so they had to get these killer reprints, these new new collections reprinting their greatest um, comic book heroes, an introduction to the Marvel Universe. You know, on the back of Origins to Marvel Comics, it says, Marvel Comics presents the origins and histories of its most famous creations. Narrated by Stan the Man Lee, the stellar story man who saw comics as more than dime store material and turned his characters into 20th century mythology. We're going to focus in on this Stan Lee, heavy, this heavy focus on Stan. We're going to examine this because it did create a lot of animosity. Included are the beginnings of the Fantastic Four, which hurled Marvel out of the era of monsters without a soul into the age of cosmic heroes. The Hulk, the brilliant scientist turned muddled monster. Spider-Man, the teenage superhero known after affectionately to aficionados as Spidey. You think Stan wrote this on the back? Thor, the surgeon, turned Norse god with the mythical hammer and the Shakespearean speech. And finally, Doctor Strange, the oddball magician who uses his satanic powers on the side of good. After you read the big, full-color stories and learn about the first heady inspirations from Stan, you will see why Origins of Marvel Comics stands alone as one of the great classics and undying tribute to Marvel Mania. This is published in 1974, this first edition. And it's interesting they say the satanic powers of Doctor Strange because the, the Satan movement was huge in the late 70s. Big time, occult, pentagrams. Uh, that was actually an effort to cash in on well, rock musicians were, were featuring them. Um, there was a big, big Anton LaVey. It kind of kicked off with the Manson family. There was a legit fascination 
with Satanism. So, so even on the back of the book, he's trying to sell you, you know, you don't normally hear Dr. Strange has satanic powers, but there it is on origins of Marvel comics. This is such a handsome book. And, and I don't know if I already said the cost, but it's six bucks, five ninety-five, two hundred, And again, uh, it's, it's standard trade paperback size, a little, little bigger than your average comic book. Great, great printing, great paper. 255 pages for six bucks. So I could not afford this. And, I, you know, it was out of my range and my parents didn't see the need for them to spend $6 cheap today. Not cheap then, but also what, what I mean by cheap is the idea was to make these first appearances, which were now completely inaccessible. You know, they were doing the reprint program, as I said, but you only get to reprint those comics once and they cycle off. If, if Marvel Tales reprinted Amazing Fantasy 15 in the, in, in the month of, you know, February 1975, that's on the newsstand and it's gone. Okay, so that one chance you had is gone. Now, with, with these dedicated trade paperbacks, they're going to be in the bookstores, on the shelves, on the really nice tables displayed as you walk in. They will have a longer shelf life in this format. And so then you can look at now, this is three years before the pocketbooks that I told you about. And those pocketbooks don't come about unless this works. The pocketbooks that were small enough to sell along with the Archie Digest at the point of purchase at your at the register of every drugstore that I ever... Drugstore in New Mexico, drugstore in Arizona, drugstore in Anaheim, in Fullerton, in Brea. All these point of purchases, these little mini digests next to the TV guide, next to the mints, next to the candy, right as they're ringing you up. So the little kid pulls on mom and says, mommy, mommy, can I have that? Like little Robbie Liefeld did. And uh, and sometimes you won, sometimes you lost. But those pocketbooks don't come about until 1977. And they don't come about unless this works. And this works spectacularly. It was such a huge hit that Simon & Schuster ordered immediately another. And that second one. Now, now, here's the deal. These have beautiful painted covers. All of them have painted colors covers. Something we're going to also discuss before the end of the show. Son of Origins. What a cool son of origins. This also has a John Romita Sr. painted cover. He was a really fantastic painter. Whoever has these originals has just beautiful historical legacy artwork. This gives you Iron Man Daredevil, Silver Surfer, the X-Men, Nick Fury, okay, the Avengers. That this goes all in and now doubles down, and now you're getting even more. And, and this, again, 255 pages, okay? 255 pages of Marvel's finest. And, and, and these are impressive to this day. So between both of these books, you're getting like, like nearly 600 pages of some of the original Marvel adventures followed by, again, they were very smart to then give you the first, you know, adventure of Thor and then give you a modern as close to possible like 100 issues later an adventure of Thor. Here they give you Kirby's Nick Fury. Um again they 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 give you uh now in this one they gave you Jack Kirby and Stanley's first appearance of Silver Surfer in Origins of Marvel Comics. In Son of Origins, they reprint John Buscema and Stanley's Silver Surfer number 1. So they further expand on it. But so here's the deal. I couldn't afford these. Well, I was strolling through my library. Now the Anaheim library that I attended, the branch that I went to was one block further down the street. So, so you would go past Magnolia 
and Broadway and keep walking. And there was the Anaheim Library. And it was a great library. I have nothing but the best memories of this library, which was literally positioned next to and still is to this day. That library is still there. That park is still there ne next to a great park. I obviously got my library card as a student, as a young student, because they encourage you to read, read, read. And obviously, again, no, 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 no computers, no smartphones, none of that even remotely coming into existence yet. And I saw one day they had Marvel, Origins of Marvel Comics, and they had Son of Origins. And my mom made me choose. You can't have both. You gotta have one. And again, you're checking them out for seven-day cycles. Um, and man, I, 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 I wasn't going to argue. I can only take one. So I took Son of Origins. That one looked more compelling to me. It was the more the power of a cover. Uh, the first cover, Origins of Marvel Comics, has the hands of Stan Lee on a typewriter. You just see two hands in the lower frame on a typewriter. And coming out of the typewriter is the title of the book, Origins of Marvel Comics by Stan Lee. And then there is uh, seven figures that John Romita Sr. has painted that are uh, taken from different... There's a Steve Ditko Spider-Man that John Romita Sr. paints in his style. There is a Kirby Thor that he paints in his style. They're kind of all coming at you um, like like above the, the, the paper that's coming out that says Origins of Marvel Comics. They are the top half of the cover. The lower half is the hands typing and the paper coming out. It's really eye-catching. It's a beautiful piece. The Son of Origins, like I said, is badass. From the thighs up, center of the page, center of the cover is Iron Man. And he is standing there badass. And he is flanked left and right. Daredevil, Scarlet Witch, who represents the Avengers. Nick Fury, Watcher, Silver Surfers in the Air above them. And Marvel Girl. Okay? I got Son of Origins. I couldn't get enough of it. What, what this started for me was the most repetitive cycle of my life of check these out. Go, go turn them in, check them back in. Or turn in Son of Origins, go get Origin of Marvel Comics. And then upon returning Origin of Marvel Comics, get Son of Origin out again. And then one day, um, ladies and gentlemen, I saw a book that, 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 that thrilled me to the deepest of my loins. And I, I was like, what is this? And uh, ironically, during this time, they were no longer $4.95. The, the, the nice price point, well, they kicked it up a dollar. Now we're going $6.95. Bring on the bad guys. I have I have referenced some of these bad guys. We have done dedicated podcasts on Kang the Conqueror. Um, we have done dedicated podcasts on Doctor Doom. Okay? Bring on the bad guys. Another painted John Romita Sr. cover where Doctor Doom is closest to camera, standing to the left, pointing his finger out at us and he is and behind him coming up towards us is Dormammu Dr. Strange's most menacing nemesis Loki clenching both his fists in the back you know Thor's nemesis Red Skull has defiantly got his arms crossed Abomination is furthest back emerging from the smoke and almost equal to but slightly behind Dr. Doom on his glider with his bomb in his hand is Green Goblin cackling with laughter and looming above all of them is Mephisto Bring on the bad guys, origins of the Marvel Comics villains. And if you don't think that bad guys sell, then you did not encounter. Bring on the bad guys. This instantly became my most favorite of all of the, the three Fireside books now in existence. 
Bring on the bad guys by Stanley. More fuel for the Marvel maniacs fire, as Stan the Man says of the supervillains in this volume. Sure, I know they're evil. Sure, I know they're up to no good. Sure, I know they're a threat to our wallets, our freedom, and they may be injurious to our health. But I've always been fascinated by the villains. And you've got to admit, our heroes need them as much as they need the Blue Cross. Included in this expose of evil are Dr. Doom, Marvel's answer to Professor Moriarty, the Red Skull, the only baddie ever created before the Marvel Age of Comics, the Green Goblin, a good guy when he's not being a bad guy, and a devoted father, Mephisto, the complete entity of evil, bring on the bad guys. Is another valiant volume in the Marvel saga. The supervillains strike back. The bring on the bad guys, both Marvel uh, Origins of Marvel Comics and Son of Origin Comics have white backgrounds. They're when I say Iron Man is standing there, you know, badass looking, um, flanked by the Marvel heroes, painted by John Romero Sr., it, it, there is 60% of the space behind them is white. And the giant Son of Origins logo is plastered there. And uh, and again, by Stanley, by Stanley, all these say by Stanley. This is definitely, I have learned a giant major bone of contention. Bring on the bad guys is all black. Mephisto is emerging from black above Dr. Doom, Dormammu, Loki, all of them is black. It reeks of like, bring, I mean, it literally bring on the bad guys. So amazing. Some of the best of these villainous stories. And again, you're getting some great Kirby art, Ditko art. You're getting um, some John Romita senior art. You're getting Gil Kane. Uh, and of course, John Buscema. I mean, again, so, so, so my... A recent episode, I talked about the Mount Rushmore of comic books. So, so my Mount Rushmore of comic books is all over these books. Buscema, Ditko, uh, 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 Jack the King Kirby. No, no Neil Adams in those editions yet. But so you can only imagine Fireside book, Books knew that they had a giant megawatt hit on their hands. And when I then went to return, bring on the bad guys and check out something new, the superhero women... Another beautiful, beautiful John Romita Sr. painting. The fabulous femme fatales of Marvel Comics are walking towards us. Black Widow is swinging towards us. Sue Storm is leading Red Sonja, Medusa, Wasp, and Ms. Marvel. The newly introduced Ms. Marvel. Ms. Marvel was not even basically a year old, but they were already thinking, we need to get this out there. So, so just going through the years, you got 74 on um, Origins of Marvel Comics. And then, you know, when you get at, get to uh, Son of Origins, you're in 75, Bring on the Bad Guys is 76, The Superhero Women of Stan by Stan Lee is 1977, which is way they, the way they can get Ms. Marvel in there. And as well as the license, I mean, they have they are marketing Red Sonja as a superhero woman of Marvel. Again, keying off to the fantasy episode, the Sword and Sorcery podcast we did, which talks about how crazy Sword and Sorcery got and, and, and how big of a moneymaker Sword and Sorcery became for the publishers in that Red Sonia was licensed from the Robert E. Howard estate who gave Marvel the license to Conan, who gave Marvel license to Cull the Destroyer and including to uh, the Red Sonia comic book. And so Red Sonia is being marketed as, as important and as, 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 uh, Priority as Black Widow, Sue Storm, you know, the Fantastic Four, um, and, and you get this beautiful Red Sonia story in here, which is, is again, speaks to how important having sword and sorcery stories and concepts concepts were. And so, uh, so th this is just uh, 
really uh, fascinating in in how they in how they worked this all this all together. And uh, and so so the superhero women again. That's that's the that's the title. That's the title of this this again now seven dollar seven dollar edition. And um, you know th- this was a fantastic. A just a just a absolutely fantastic uh, compilation of of the best exploits of the most powerful um, females, and again, you in the, in the culture in the culture um, the feminist movement was was huge. It was Gloria Steinem and all of the feminine feminist movement that was going on were were uh, were, were just tearing up the the, the 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 culture. Not tearing up; they were blowing up. They, they were becoming more prominent, not blowing up in the negative sense. I mean, like glowed up. The the, the feminist, um, and when I say tearing it up, I meant like tearing it up all the way up the charts. So so Marvel was very wise to get this out there. So let me pivot to the last days of Stan Lee when I went to visit him. And when I went to visit Stan, about okay, good two and a half months before he unfortunately would pass. Uh, I remember the entire drive up. I was nervous. I was nervous. What was I going to say? I didn't want to upset him. It had been a very upsetting year, two years for him. He had lost his wife. And then there was a series of handlers who battled over, um, who would control his life. And, um, there are all sorts of crazy allegations and charges against a number of these gentlemen, none of which, uh, Ended up well for Stan. He w- there are rumors and innuendo that he was all but being held hostage. Truth be told, when the truth truth is told, it is the bodyguards that were hired by the handlers to protect Stan that turned on the handlers, seeing firsthand the abuse that they allege was 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 taking place, and they contacted the authorities and finally freed Stan back into the custody of people who truly loved and cared about him and just wanted to settle him in, pulled him off the road. You, you saw stories and, and depictions of Stan suffering, blankets around him, passing out while he signed comics, barely cognizant, very sad, the abuse. He definitely uh, was being abused in the last you know, year and a half of his life. Once he had found comfort with people I trusted and knew, people who were trying to reach him, uh, the entire period that he was being basically you know, thrown back and forth between, uh, uh, abusive handlers. Uh, my good friend, John, shout out to John. He was able to, with the help of the bodyguards to reassert John loved Stan, Stan loved John. John was frozen out for this period. And as were so many people who cared about Stan, I was invited up after things had settled and things had been settled for over five, six weeks to go visit Stan. So I did, I drove up to the Hollywood Hills and I didn't want to say anything that upset him. I didn't really want to, I, I was very careful in trying to, what would I say? And what would I say if this was my last conversation with Stan Lee? This is what I, you know, was considering. And at the end of the day, I decided I would thank him for coming out here and building up the the Marvel brand in Hollywood, knowing, seeing, having the foresight to see that through the media was the increased uh, awareness of the Marvel Comics brand, that, that, that the TV shows... Without Stan coming out to LA, we don't get the Lou Ferrigno Hulk show. The Hulk, you know, helps propel Marvel Comics into the mainstream consciousness. We don't get all those great cartoons on Saturday mornings. It was a resurgence that started in the 70s. They scratched at it in the 60s. They definitely had cartoons in the 60s. They definitely had some live action attempts in black and white. But now, this new age, which uh, 
which, which, which again, the Lou Ferrigno Hulk show was the most important. All the CBS, the Doctor Strange movies, the, the Captain America movies, the Spider-Man series and series of, of movies. Nicholas Hammond, we've discussed those again on different podcasts. Stan had come out and he had successfully gotten the wheels turning for what eventually Kevin Feige would take and helm and give to us what is now the MCU. So I just wanted to give Stan a really generous, loving compliment. This is a very old man, late 80s, very, um, just very, or 90s, very, very, you know, had been through a very traumatic period. He, and I was told, because I, again, I had traveled so often with Stan in the last five years, sharing numerous flights, sitting next to him, giving up my seat when he didn't like his chair. Um, we, we did back to back to back to back so many conventions. And the, and the thing is that, uh, he had apparently asked for me, said he was lonely, wanted to see other people besides the bodyguards and John and John said, no, come on up. And so I did. And Stan was so warm and greeted me. And the, and the thing was Stan looked fantastic. He looked resilient. He had life in his face again, color. We overlooked the pool and the beautiful mountains, mountain view that he had of the, of the, of the Hollywood Hills. And, uh, I said, Stan, as, as we pivoted down and he said, how you doing? And I said, look, I just want to thank you on behalf of everybody in my generation for having the foresight to be uncomfortable, to get out from New York where you were comfortable, where you were chief, where you were the top dog and gamble on everything that was going on out here. What that turned into was him telling me, you know, Rob, I'm not going to do a Stanley voice right now. <laughs> you know, Rob, he, uh, he, he said, getting the books into the libraries, getting those fireside books. And, and that was a huge accomplishment. And, and we made that a choice. Again, the beginning of the awareness of getting these characters into the into the larger um, awareness of the culture beyond the spinner racks at the drugstores, liquor stores, and the convenience stores. Getting them prominent display on these tables. And they were, again, as these came out, families of them were now being displayed. You got Bring on the Bad Guys with the superhero women, with uh, Son of Origins, Origin of Marvel Comics. And... Uh, and he said, and you wouldn't believe how much the librarians fought me. The, the, the Librarians Association fought me. They, they thought this was child's, you know, child's material. And we said, no, please put it in the all audience area, which is where I got them. I got them in a more adult section of science fiction at the library. They were not in the kids section where they have the little low tables hide the ground and the little plastic chairs. When you're, you know, 10 years old, you feel like you've outgrown that. And you're definitely at 10 years old and eating as much candy as I was too big for that chair. Okay, so you were definitely not hanging out in that child section. So Stan then pivots and, and got a little spirited in how he had to go before the Librarian Association Committee and, and plead with them to carry these books in the sci-fi, the more adult sections, so that they would be more accessible to the masses because that was the mission statement for these fireside books. And as they pile up here, I mean, I, these are thick and 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 they're going to cost you. If you want to go and get additions to these, they're not cheap. I've, I've looked to adding to my childhood collection to getting nicer copies and it's really, I mean, they're, you're going to pay. You're going to pay some pretty, pretty coin, okay? But, but these books are... So wonderful. And so then they started doing dedicated ones. Doctor Strange, okay? Doctor Strange, just an entire book of Steve Ditko and and and, and some Barry, Barry Smith Doctor Strange adventures. Fantastic Four, dedicated, fireside. These were not as 
thick. They were again back down to being $4.395 because they weren't 250 pages. They were 130 pages. But you got six, seven great, fantastic four stories. Again, it would cost you. You couldn't go out and buy a first appearance of Hulk or Fantastic Four or Thor. Getting back to there was only a reprint. And if it came out in one month of Spider-Man or the origin of Doctor Strange, it was gone. This way, at four or five bucks, these are always accessible to you because you can't get Amazing Fantasy. You, you can't get you can't get Journey into Mystery with Thor. Okay, those are going to cost you at that point high hundreds, low thousands, which is a, a ton of money in the seventies. Okay, so making these accessible and, and indoctrinating us with Marvel Comics and their heroes and getting them in front of the right eyeballs, it matters. It absolutely matters. Marvel, we're going to touch on this. Did a deal when they were forming their own Marvel, you know, the, the 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 MCU that they financed on their own, that they raised enough money for briefly. I don't know if you guys remember, they were doing a lot of direct to DVD. They did Doctor Strange direct to DVD, Iron Man direct to DVD, all the, the stuff that they had left that they controlled. They were issuing animated straight to DVDs that would be point of purchase at Target at Walmart. Before the live action renaissance happened in 2008, they were indoctrinating you with, look, we know you saw Spider-Man, which we don't own, which Sony owns. That's in theaters now and and, and, and a Marvel property. And we don't own that, but X-Men, you know, all that stuff was with Fox. But what's left, what we control, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, Captain America, we're giving you direct to DVD 60, 70 minute adventures that you can purchase that will hopefully get you to appreciate Iron Man so that in two years, from 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 now, three years from now, when you get it on the screen, you'll be like, I had Iron Man in my in my home. I had him in the DVD cassette. That 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 direct to DVD only available if I bought the DVD at at, at Target. That's the in, the same amount of indoctrination, getting out in front, getting something that will get you used to rooting for these characters. So Doctor Strange, Fantastic Four, um, the Hulk, Spider Man. The, the painted covers shifted to Bob Larkin, one of the greatest fantasy artists of the 70s. And this they just never look back. As I look at this, this is some of the this is among the most important books in my collection. I cherish them in a way that you have no idea. They did Mighty, Mighty Marvel Team Up Thrillers, which came out. This is the last one I remember getting. It may be the last one that they produced, but had it, this has John Byrne. This has this has Spider-Man Red Sonia. Again, they are giving you Red Sonia. This is Bite my tongue, 1983. Fireside Books, Mighty Marvel Team-Up Chillers, another painted cover. Uh, cover. I think this is by Earl Norum, but it gives you some of the best. You got John Byrne in here. You got John Buscema. You got Jack Kirby. You got uh, you got um, John Romita Sr. I mean, this is a blast. This is absolutely a blast. A, a really great cover. Marvel, Mighty Marvel Team-Up Thrillers. At last, the sensational best-selling Marvel origin series continues featuring the world's greatest superheroes in cataclysmic combat with more sinister, savage supervillains than you can shake a flying surfboard at. So at the end, so one of the, the it wasn't the end, but it was the culmination um, before they would issue these final ones in 83. And, it, and there was a big gap, which is why on the back of this, it says, you know, at last, this continues. In, in, in 19... Uh, 1978, the first original Fireside book came out. Not a reprint, original. It was commissioned and it is believed to be the original graphic novel. This is believed to be the modern equivalent, the modern day 
first ever graphic novel. Brand new Silver Surfer story by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. It turns out they were pitching Silver Surfer as a movie. And the idea was to get out way in front and make sure that this book was in the hands of, as being by the creators of Silver Surfer. Kirby and, and Stan reunited. They hadn't worked together in years. Jack had only come back from Marvel. for He had been back at Marvel for only a year when he started this, okay? And, and he had left Marvel and gone to DC almost a decade earlier, eight years earlier, because he was fed up. He didn't like how he was being treated. And he and Stan definitely weren't getting along. But because of the importance of them trying to position Silver Surfer as a giant pop media um, figure that could get a giant movie. Again, this is the after effects of Star Wars, what I started with today, okay? The after effects of Star Wars. Big, big, big budget. <laughs> I love when I get carried away. The big, big, big budget sci-fi was a thing. And, and Marvel was trying to get in that game. So they brought Stan and Jack back together. Obvious, a, a nice paycheck for Mr. Jack Kirby. And it is a very unique, original, never before, and, and, and I think it's only been reprinted itself once, but this bad boy is, so, so you are getting 115 pages of Jack Kirby, Joe Sinnott, the Fantastic Four team, brought all back together with a slightly augmented Silver Surfer origin story upon which he comes to Earth. He appears as a human. He lives amongst, among us to believe, to see if we have judgment. Um, there, there's a there's a new uh, female character introduced, and at the end, at the end, uh, he has a huge battle with Jack Kirby. I mean, with with Jack, <laughs> with Galactus. Surfer and Galactus have a giant have two nice two nice throwdowns in the middle of this book. They're really really spectacular. And again, as as far as first appearance is Ardina, this golden woman. She kind of looks like Adam Warlock as a girl, um, or or she, but Ardina is the creation, uh, the female, she, she, she's introduced in this big splash, but Galactus never looks better. Uh, Jack's pencils are amazing. Joe Sinnott's inks are fantastic. It is a different pivot in regards to how you can do the origin of Silver Surfer without the Fantastic Four, which was obviously its own property. But this is a original work, Fireside, Silver Surfer, all new, Stanley, Jack Kirby, the Silver Surfer, the ultimate cosmic experience. This has an Earl no Noam uh, who was a great fantasy sci-fi painter, Earl Norum, uh, painted, the, the, the cover looks like a movie poster. It's spectacular. And it is based on a Jack Kirby sketch. So Jack at least was, you know, at the very least contributing uh, to, to, to the sketch uh, uh, it, with because all of the books had covers. There's been a lot of like, you know, I, I've seen groups where they get up in arms like, well, Jack should have done the cover. Um, you know, it should have been Jack's line art. He's the creator, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, these books had a very definite, um, they had a specific look to them, all of them, whether it was John Romita Sr. painting them or Bob Larkin or Earl Norum, the painted look of the covers was was part of the consistency of the books, especially, as I said, when they're put on these tables. And you guys, this was prominently featured in the bookstores of the time. Like, you know, New Marvel, New Marvel. And, it, and, and it's, oh, I have a beautiful, just a beautiful, mine has stayed in really nice condition. I put it in a plastic bag. I broke it out today to flip through it. It is some powerful, great Jack Kirby art. It is significant in that Stan and Jack worked together for the first time in ages. And there is a dichotomy to what's going on because Jack Kirby believes and always did that Surfer was created from energy. 
uh, as part of energy that was released from Galactus, a piece of him, which was which made him this cognizant, you know, uh, awareness, uh, 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 this this artificial intelligence, basically. Stan shifted with Silver Surfer number one that John Buscema drew and gave this backstory that he Noran Rad was in love with Shala Ball and sacrificed himself in, in order to save his planet, and that was that went against what Jack wanted, and it was part of the deep rift that they had created, and possibly one of the reasons that he left. Uh, and went to DC because this was very personal. Jack maintains that he and and Stan has admitted that Jack wholly created Silver Surfer um, by himself. There are YouTube videos and interviews where he um, has caved and said that it was a byproduct. And anyone who knows Jack Kirby knows that Jack Silver Surfer, like the New Gods, like Eternals, they bear a certain imprimatur that Jack does so well. It's always interesting to see when the two parties separate. What did Stan do post Jack? What did Jack do post Stan? It, sometimes. That's enough to tell all the story. And if your eyes are open, you can see it for yourself. I've said on my dedicated Stan Lee podcast, he was the Ryan Seacrest of Marvel Comics. Every show needs a host, and Marvel Comics was indeed a show, and there was no one ever better better at it than, than, than Stan Lee, who was the Ryan Seacrest, as I've said on this show, in that podcast, where Ryan Seacrest says, and this is American Idol. He says, and this, Stan, and this is Marvel Comics, okay? So so, so Stan was a great host, not always the best character generator. He leaned on some really heavies like Steve Ditko, like Jack Kirby to generate those. And Jack's vision of Silver Surfer here, if you take the word balloons off, it reads completely differently. There's, it, it is very, the only thing about this graphic novel, it's very verbose and Stan is still putting his, his insisting that no, he doesn't, isn't energy that, that comes from Galactus. He's a man. He has a past. He he's a bit of a whiner. And and again, the the two opposing viewpoints of Surfer are on display in this because they wanted Jack to draw it. They needed Jack to draw it, and yet Stan could not give over to that depiction of of of, of Jack Surfer. So he reemphasizes with some uncomfortable dialogue at, at some points. Um, you know, making sure that you know that no Stan's vision of 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 this story still matters as well. So very interesting. The very first graphic novel delivered to you by Fireside Novels, Simon & Schuster's Fireside Label. These books are such a part of anybody who's my age, our childhood, our collective childhood, and indeed got these books to the masses in a way that I had not experienced before. They became prominent in bookstores in a way that the comic books never did. And then again, by the time you get to the pocketbooks, the acceptance of those, they're all over the place. They're they're at, at, at point of purchases, at your grocery stores, at your drug stores, at your convenience stores. And uh, and then when How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way comes out, and it came out as a hardcover first, I have it, um, it, it it's prominently displayed because of the ground and the work that these books did, that, that the ground that they broke in the first place, getting them there. This is all part of the slow build to the dominance so Marvel Comics by the Fireside, as I call it, by the Fireside, great, great title. Read your comics by the Fireside, kids. Uh, they were great. They were terrific. They 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 made the difference. They 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 set they set the tone for a different approach and a different acceptance. And again, it looks better when you're walking around with a book than a flimsy, as some people call them, pamphlet, which they're not. But that's a common denigration of the art form, pamphlets. We have, as an industry, pivoted big time. Whether it's Walking Dead, Image's entire catalog, Marvel's finest works, Dark Knight, Watchmen, 
you know, Swamp Thing, V for Vendetta, into this hardcover graphic novel format. That was started with these. That started right here with this Marvel Fireside collection. You should check them out. They're magnificent. Thank you for reliving that period. It was great. It's significant. It's historical. There's a legacy behind these books. So, uh, I, I mean, I just, I, this, this is really, we definitely flipped the time machine on today, spent a lot of time back in that beautiful, beautiful seventies, that beautiful seventies lifestyle. Um, this is, as you are aware, the time that we, uh, go through and, uh, and, and, um, and read your, uh, uh, reviews of which you are so, so generous. And, and, and again, the show needs that the show needs your reviews. It needs your reviews. It needs your word of mouth. It needs you guys out there um, sharing, uh, sh- sharing, sharing um, what we're doing, and and uh, and and I could not be more appreciative of of the way that you guys are are sharing the word about this podcast, and and it makes all the difference. It is it is making all the difference in regards to how um how we are expanding the audience reaching more people and uh you know the 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 reviews that you guys leave for me um you know is is the stuff that I love to share at the end of every episode and 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 because I mean honestly it's 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 so fun and and I just like to uh I I like to share with you guys all of the all all of the different reviews that are being being left here and this is from comic observer comic observer he cites himself as comic superfan i just wanted to say that rob's observations brings me back to my childhood everything rob talks about from pop culture to comic books from the 70s and the 80s i was right there riding along one night of the week we'd stay up to eight o'clock to watch our favorite show six million dollar man listening to the podcast brings back so many memories of a simpler time love hearing rob talk about his image days and my favorite wait for it his Todd McFarlane imitation. Thank you, Comic Observer. You are far too kind. You are far too kind. I am so appreciative. Um, Amazing podcast. This podcast is so good. Rob is extremely relatable, providing great inside stories about the comics industry, giving great movie and comic book recommendations. Um, Thank you so much. Um, You guys are just... (laughs) You are... Uh, so favorable and, and and so kind, and I, I love to um to to share all of of your reviews. Here's one last sold. Rob observation delivers the peek behind the curtains we all crave. Can't say enough about how awesome it is to have an icon in pop culture and especially the comic book genre shares perspectives and behind the scene access with fans of of the culture. Rob is easily the most engaging, charismatic comic book creator in the business and has plenty to share with anyone who wants to listen. Every podcast will surprise you a little bit and he does a great job of bringing to the surface hidden gems that will be worth you seeking out or digging back into your collection to re-examine. As always, cannot Wait till the next episode. That is from Rob Knuckleboy Roland. Thank you, Rob Knuckleboy Roland, for your enthusiasm. Thank you for your um, your your uh, your review. I really appreciate it, guys. Continue to get those reviews out. They help the profile of the show. They they help the the um the spreading the word of mouth. So many more of of you guys are interacting with me, and I, I love it. You can reach me on Twitter. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Full name. No break at Robert Liefeld. I have a blue check. That's really me. That um, um, hang out with me, talk with me. I love I love Sharon, Karen, um, uh, not Karen, the the the, the Karen, but sharing and caring. 
uh, and, and on, on Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Just Rob Liefeld again. No Robert. That one I got. Rob Liefeld. Same blue check. It's really me. I love to hanging out with you guys. Hang, hang, love sharing ideas. Talking comics. Talking pop culture. I'm all over Facebook. Hit me up. I am always available to chat and to uh, to share with you guys. And, and I just love hearing from you. Thank you for visiting this show. Thank you for spreading the word. Spreading the love. Uh, can't do it without you. We have moved into this new kind of brighter phase. We've made it through a really difficult period together, and it's great, and thank you. Um, it, it's that period that this was born in, and, and, and I'm so thankful that my loneliness uh, and, and, my, and, my, and my new romance with my, my Blue Yeti mic became something that, that some of you can enjoy and, and do enjoy, and, and thank you once again. You guys know the drill. You are going to take care of yourselves. You're going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon.